This episode is powered by up-and-coming fitness and accountability specialist Eli G. Anderson. Book your first L.A.-based personal training session today. Functional calisthenics, lean muscle building, sports-style training, and a focus on making fitness fun. All sessions are customized for you. Get four sessions for only $200 by texting THRIVE50 to 860-576-1815. That is 860-576-1815. This only applies to the first 10 people who text this number. Guys, I'm going to level with you. If you're ready to become the healthiest version of yourself, get in touch with my friend Eli today. There's no other opportunity like it. 860 576 Five seven six one eight one five. You have stumbled upon Stars of Tomorrow. For every Friday, I, Mr. Thrive, interview playwright Izzy Salant, who has not yet been discovered. This up-and-coming podcast interviews the up-and-coming. Izzy, how you doing, man? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for coming to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really funny because, like, at the very, very beginning of the show, I think in, like, the first episode, I'm not even kidding, I name-dropped you as, like, as if you were going to be the next episode. And then, like, seven episodes later, I finally <laughs> got around to it. <laughs> Why that is, I, I can't exactly say. But it was just, like, I was genuinely surprised at like myself and the scheduling and how that all worked out it was just funny you're a hard guy to catch yeah <laughs> well the good news is it just gave your viewers something to listen for and now they've you know waited seven episodes and now they're uh now they're here for it. exactly you know and i take that back you're not a hard guy to catch i'm just i don't know i i, I it's hard to explain because like I, there was still we would still hang out and like mm-hmm. do stuff and like we'd talk about the podcast what happened after that uh i don't know i think we just got busy hanging out and talking about our own projects on the side outside of the podcast. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, like we got to, you know, schedule these things. Like, you, you know, you got to set up your equipment. We got to make sure we got to like do stuff to like make sure that like, the interview's going well. Uh, whereas if I'm just like, yo, you want to grab dinner? Like we don't have to do that. Right. And it definitely was <laughs> refreshing when we finally sat down and it was like, okay, actually let's talk about the podcast. Let's talk about what, what's the best way to put you out there because you're another one of the people in my long list of names. <laughs> That I believe will will succeed in the film industry. Yeah. If not, be famous. Aww. And and I I think one of the first things that you ever said to me, you, I was, I was surprised because like, there was a certain level of trust that you have when you really bond with someone for the first time ever, and you said to me, "Let's make a pack." One of the first things I was like, "Whoa, okay, what's the pact?" And you said, "Let's make a pact where if if, if I succeed, you're gonna help me, and and, I'll, and vice versa." And I was like, yeah, I'm into it. Let's do it. And I thought that was really cool and admirable. And I was like, this guy doesn't know me, but he gets that we connect. We have this connection. And since then, we've become kind of best friends. Uh, How did we meet? Go ahead and tell them how we met. Okay, so I don't know if you guys know what AISH is, um, but I don't know what it stands for. But it's a Jewish organization here in L.A., um, and it's specifically dedicated to young professionals, at least the part that we're part of AISH Lit. Um, And there's a family that basically hosts Shabbat dinners every Friday night. And so my friend was like, hey, do you want to come to this? And I was like, yeah, cool. Why not? And I show up and I meet Chaz uh, and we're talking for a bit. And it's really fun. We both found out that like we like screenwriting. Uh, and so we just kind of sit down next to each other. We talk the whole time. And like at the end of the night, Chaz is like, yo, do you want to come apple picking at my house tomorrow? <laughs> I had just met this guy like 
two hours before. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I have nothing to do. Yeah, right. I'll come. So I come, like, I meet his other friends, and, you know, we're really chilling, everyone, and everyone thinks that we've been friends for forever, and they're like, how long have you known each other? And we keep checking our watches, and we're like, well, in about 10 minutes, it'll be about 12 hours since we met. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. It's seriously. It was, it, was, it was really strange how quick that connection was. But it's one of those connections, one of those, uh, those meetings that I'll cherish. It was, definitely was very unique. We had a lot of interests, uh, you know, related and whatnot, and I, I, I will always cherish that. I really will. The spontaneity of it all. Right. Yeah. Um, from that point, you showed me a lot of your, your scripts and whatnot. I've read a lot of your work. Sorry, my nose is stuffy. I'll start that over again. It's, uh, it's my fault. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. You got me sick. Yeah, I've been, so I've been sick for, like, not sick now, but, like, I was sick for a bit to the point where my roommate would, like, come into my room and be like, hey, friend, you look like death. Uh, and then Chaz and I hung out, and then at the end, Chaz was like, hey, is you got me sick. Screw you. Uh, well, more than that, but you kept on putting your hand on my shoulder when you were getting over being sick, and I was like, you gotta stop passing your fucking germs over through this bridge of contact You right know what? Now. That's how people bond. I am so mad together. at you. I've been sick. I drink I'm pretty orange sure, juice I'm pretty sure morning. me t- 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 uh, putting my washed hands on your shoulder, which was covered in clothes. It's not like we were naked. Are you kidding me? It, it, you slathered that mucus-filled hand that did down my not, shoulder. That, what? I saw the germs crawl into my nostril. That is such a vivid, I had what? No, I had no control. That is so... It was in a public setting. I didn't want to be awkward, but I should have been. You know, I should have been. That is so specifically morbid and vivid. Well, and... I'm still angry about it. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> Mr. Thrive stars of tomorrow will continue if Chaz survives to tomorrow. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I'm like I'm like I I, I slept way too much because I'm really trying just to recover as fast as possible. And you know what? I did. But you know what, Izzy? You know what really put the icing on the cake with Izzy? What really grinds your gears? Yeah. What really grinded my gears is that I had to drink tea. I'm not British, but I drank tea because I'm sick, and that infuriates me. How dare you make me drink tea? I'm a coffee man. Thank you very much. I, I, I'm sorry. Like, I don't know how you want me to like, oh, how dare you drink something that many Americans drink that there are literal shops dedicated to. And it's not like you hate tea. Well, bottom line is this. If I sound weird on this podcast, we know who to blame. Thank you, Izzy. I feel like you sounded weird before you got sick though. Oh, oh, here comes the insults. Kick him while he's down. Oh, I'm so sorry. Cause I'm insulting you after you tell your entire views about your vivid mucus <laughs> traveling up your shoulder to your nostrils. It was very terrifying. <laughs> um, but I, I now want to, I, I now want to switch the focus a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so going from mucus to playwright. Yeah. yeah let's talk about that. The no, Izzy I, I want to switch the focus over to your playwrights because, because since, since we've met, I've read a, a few pieces of your work. Uh, and I can't wait to read more of it. But there's this one piece that you wrote. When when did you write Rite of Passage? Cool. Uh, so Rite of Passage, which we'll get into like the actual full details in a bit, uh, started out as a play called From the Point of View of a Journalist in 2016. Um, and through the years and through workshops and playwriting classes and just producing it and like figuring out what works and what didn't work, it evolved into Rite of Passage. So I started it in 2016, but like it really didn't come to fruition. I didn't have like, you know the change of title or like a much more comprehensive script until I think 20 end of 2017, early 2018. Okay. Gotcha. Cause I mean, I, I read it and it was, it was raw. It was very raw. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, just knowing, 
you know, the little bit that I do know about Izzy. I know a lot about Izzy, but in terms of his past, which we will uncover as we as we go through this, uh, there there are some you know incredibly sensitive uh, things that took place that I think Izzy illustrates incredibly well and incredibly realistic in his play called Rite of Passage. Uh, Izzy, from what I understand, you are autistic. Yeah, I uh, so. It's, it's weird in that regard because um, part of me wants to identify like as someone who is autistic, but like depending on uh, how you like treat Asperger's or something like that, some people wouldn't describe it as that. Some people in the community like don't even like calling people that. Um, I'm not like policing language or anything. It's just, it's weird to like fully describe myself as that. And like I've even like gotten, like I've even talked to people who are like, don't believe me when I say that. The easiest thing to say is just like, like, yeah, I am, but like I have, I have Asperger's and I've like, you know, gotten not, I guess, help is the word, but, like, gotten, like, therapy to, like, make sure that, like, you know, I'm able to be a lot more functional and able to just, you know, make sure I'm living with it. And it's incredible, because when I met you, I, I, it, it, it caught me off guard. I, I didn't expect it. I, I've been around, uh, autism in my life at, at various different points. Uh, you know, different family members of mine have Asperger's, and, and they, they suffer with it. So when I, when I saw you, I, I assumed, you know, I, I never got that I never got that impression and and I, I have so much respect for some of the challenges that you've gone through. Uh, these challenges are presented in rite of passage in an incredibly vulnerable way. Uh, and, and part of what's what, what's heartbreaking when I was reading uh, rite of passage, even though there are the comedic moments, even though there are the you know the the bewildering moments, there is this there's like this one underlying theme of like, uh, innocence in juxtaposition to reality, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if I'm saying that very well, but it 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 was this it was this heart wrenching feeling that I had to suppress in order to keep reading and keep and keep witnessing it uh, through through your eyes. Uh, you know what what were some of the events in your life that kind of inspired this script? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll give everybody like a brief synopsis of what it is. Um, the story follows a 50-year-old Jewish father raising his 12-year-old autistic son by himself after his wife commits suicide. You know, the feel-good play of the summer. Um, and it's somewhat based around my life. Um, I was not 12 when it happened. Basically, when I was 10, my mother ended her life, and I was raised by my father uh, for about four or five years until he met my stepmother, who I loved to death, and I you know, I call her mom and, you know, we have a very wonderful family dynamic. Um, and they live all the way on the other side of the country. <clears throat> um, but, uh, you know, for a while it was just my dad and I, um, and, you know, over time and everything, like I've come to process, you know, the emotions about like what it was like finding out that my mother didn't die of natural causes, you know, finding out what it was like, you know, as a kid, cause I don't remember a lot of those stuff. Um, and actually when I wrote this play, I did a lot of interviews and I literally sat down with my father and my aunt who's also a main character in the play and for four hours I just filled notebooks with stories about my mother and stories about that time with me, my aunt, my dad and what it was like kind of going through that Um, because again I don't fully remember stuff and that kind of culminated into the story of Rite of Passage and that you know working with my actors when I've produced it before and working with other playwrights and in classes and everything kind of sculpted it into the play that you ultimately read. Sure. In in those stories that you described writing about your mom uh you know were they were they kind of this fantastical image 
or was there ever moments of like where you kind of wanted to I, I don't know what what does a kid write about write, write about his mom's that situation I, I I don't even know how to frame the question to be honest right um so the thing is like so back in 2016 I was 19 yeah yeah I was 19 um and so you know I've had I had basically about nine-ish years to process all this stuff and like you know I was more mature I wasn't you know a teenager even though technically 19 is but like I was a college student um and I had gotten to the point where you know I wanted to write about it and I wanted to talk about it and I was at a point where I could look at it through a different lens and uh, a big part about that is you know when you're learning stories when you're doing these things because my mother passed away when I was 10 so I didn't fully know her uh as much as I would have liked to, I don't have as many memories, and I'll be honest with that, as I would have liked to. A lot of the stuff I remember or have, uh, talk about is stuff that my parents have told me currently, or my aunt has told me, or my family, or watching old videos. Um, and the other thing about it is the main focus of the story is not me. It's my father. Um, he's the main character. I'm also one of the central characters in it, but... He's the main character because I've written a lot about, you know, my experiences with it or like what I remember or stuff like that, but I didn't talk about it from his perspective. And so there are definitely stories I didn't know or there's stuff I wasn't, you know, old enough to learn at the time that I learned when I interviewed them. Um, And when you do that, it's weird because, you know, it's not that we don't talk about it in my family, but, you know, it was a really long time ago. You know, we, it's not that we've moved past it. We've just learned and and, uh, grown from it. And when you sit them down and you're preparing them for this and you sit down, my father, my my aunt, who's my uh, biological mother's sister, um, and you sit down my family and you just ask them, you know, what was my mother like? What are some stories about that? What are some things I didn't know? What was she like to me? You can see in their eyes how much they like want to tell you, but at the same time, you know, you realize that they're digging up stuff they probably haven't had to talk about in a very long time. And I, I remember this one time I was asking my dad, about, you know, what it was like telling me when my mother passed away. Um, And I didn't really fully include that in the play, actually. I didn't want to because I didn't want the play to be, like, leading up to the death or, you know, what it was like right in that moment. I want it to be grief after. I want it to be the process. I remember asking my dad about it, and I remember him taking about two minutes not answering, and he was just a very, very calm person. And he just retold the story uh about walking up to my room telling me the news and I just remember looking at him and I was like wow he hasn't really thought about this in a while this is something that you know is going to be a lot for him um and then flash forward I know I've been talking a lot but flash forward to when he actually saw the play um afterwards he was you know very he was very proud of me because he's my dad and he really loved the play But what he told me was he was very worried that it was going to be, you know, digging up old memories. It was going to be just everything beforehand. And he was very, very happy that it was, you know, dealing with it after. And he said that I really captured what everyone was going through at the time. Wow. And that, to me, felt like I had succeeded. I I think you have. And and how many times has has the show now now gone on? Um, So I've only self-produced it once. Um, it was at my college. I like had a stage manager. I had a director. I had lighting designers. Uh, I, my school gave me a bunch of resources, so it didn't really cost anything. And like we fully staged it. Um, so it's only been actually produced once, uh, but it has had a couple of readings. 
um, including one at the Kennedy Center. Um, I submitted it to this undergraduate playwriting contest, and I was a semifinalist. And then they were like, hey, uh, you didn't get the actual thing, but if you'd like to come to the full intensive with adults and everyone else, I was like, I'm kind of an adult. So <laughs> this was like this past year. This was in June, right, was right yeah. after I graduated college. Sure. Um, and I think that's how we all feel. We're all kind of adults, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I went there and, you know, I got to see like professional actors, you know, doing some scenes from it. I got to work on my writing and it was just amazing. Um, and now I'm submitting it everywhere else. And I really just kind of want to see it go up because I genuinely believe it's a story that needs to be told. And I really want to see it be told. I think so. After reading it, I, I think you're covering a subject matter that's really hard for people, for people to face. And I, you know, I, I think that some of the, it's especially important right now because some of the, some of the media, that has kind of surfaced covering the subject matter of suicide and the family dynamics afterwards, I think are very superficial. Not to talk badly, but the show 13 Reasons Why, oh, for I, example. I hate that show. It's such a distorted, bastardized kind of tale about what leads to suicide. Mm -hmm. You know? It doesn't even begin to cover the surface. And I've, I've even heard people go to the extent of saying that it glorifies suicide. And I, I, I kind of get what they're saying the more and more that I come to understand, uh, mm -hmm. not necessarily the motives, but, but you know, like, I guess like the different layers of, of this, mm -hmm. this awful phenomenon. The, the thing about 13 Reasons Why, I know like we're not fully talking about that, but the reason I vehemently dislike the show is, and I've read this from, like, numerous sources, so it's not like I'm just, like, getting everything from the internet. Like, I've read this from... But if I end up being wrong, then I apologize for that. But from what I've read and from what I've gathered is that they... The reason they shot it in this town and everything is, one, that's where the book was based, but two, it's because it's a very, very big hub for, you know, teen suicide. And so it's, like, the place to, like, do your research and to, like, figure out because there's a lot of organizations dedicated there, et cetera, et cetera. And the producers went to you know these organizations and were like hey we want to do this show we're adapting it selena gomez executive producer give us advice on how to make sure like you know we're showing the we're showing this correctly we're telling the stories correctly we're making sure and i was like wow that's that's amazing i don't know why everyone hates this show and then i found out that the organizations and the experts gave them like a list of what not to do and they did every single one they ignored it completely it was basically a pr move um, That's pathetic. And I was like, you don't need to, like, because there are plenty of shows that, you know, have suicide, and there are plenty of shows that show mental illness. I mean, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is one of my favorite shows, and they deal with mental illness all the time. There's literally a suicide attempt in the show. I'm not going to tell you when, no spoilers, but that's dealt with very, very well, and 13 Reasons Why does not do that, and what I wanted to do with my play and what I really was trying not to do is I was not trying to glorify suicide. I was not trying to say it's the be-all, end-all. I was not trying to basically say, you know, uh, that this is, we should hold suicide in a certain way. But I was also, at the same time, not trying to blame victims of it um, because we tend to think of it as a very selfish act and we tend to do things. But people who commit suicide don't do it just because they want to like no one has been like you know what i want to do today just do it like people have thought about it they realize what they're giving up they know the people they're hurting they genuinely believe they'd be better off which is why in my play because uh the mother who's dead is like never alive in the entire show she just manifested in everybody's memories 
is so different depending on who she's talking to because it's how everyone else is processing it versus, you know, who she actually was. You know, trying to show people, like, this is how we're dealing with it, but that she wasn't a bad person. I noticed that. Yeah. Her personality did kind of change between every different character. And I guess that's that's kind of how we, we speak, too, and that's part of what makes it very realistic. I wanted to ask you, uh, people who have watched the show before, uh, has anyone with experience of, you know, perhaps surviving suicide or contemplating suicide ever come up to you and um, expressed, you know, any kind of response to the show? Not that people will know who these people are, but just to protect their identities, I'm going to, you know, not use their names. But I had, you know, random people that I'd never met seen the show, and I had, you know, some really good friends see the show. And I remember one of my friends afterwards, uh, because her boyfriend was the lead in the show, um, came up to me and just gave me a really big hug. And was like, I never thought that I would see my grief and grief like mine represented so well. Wow. And that really touched me because one, I was like, I was not like, I like, I think I'm, you know, decent, but I was like, wow, I did not expect to do that. Sure. But two, it was just, it made me realize that like theater, I mean, I always have known theater can like change the world and theater like really elicits emotions, but I didn't realize that I was capable of doing that. And it was one of the first times that I saw that not only this is something I want to do, but this is, like, something I can do. Yeah. And these are, I am able to tell stories, I'm able to get these responses, and I'm able to, like, have people see something they never thought they'd be able to see. I think that's, I think that's really neat, and that's something that I've, I've only dreamt of uh, accomplishing to that caliber, you know? So I, I tip my hat to you, because, because that's, I mean, that's, that's a pretty incredible feet you know right there so congratulations seriously thank you would you ever consider uh producing it again yeah um i so uh, going into like the nitty-gritty of theater if you want something produced self-produce it it'll get produced like if you do it yourself it will get produced if you find a theater if you budget it if you finance it it will get produced but that also means you again have to do it yourself so if you don't have the money or you're not in college and don't have all the resources or you don't have investors, you know, it's really hard to get a show produced. Um, it might not seem like it's a lot of money. I mean, film is way more expensive, but like to get a reading done can cost anywhere from, you know, a thousand to twenty thousand dollars. Was that your first play ever produced? Uh, it was my first full play ever produced. I've had a couple readings done before. I've like been invited to festivals where they just, you know, did a one act and stuff like that. But it was my first really big thing and I and I will say because you know I had my college resources you know I didn't have to book the room I didn't have to pay for printing cost because I wrote it I didn't have to pay for uh rights because we had lights and we had everything in our theater department I didn't have to pay for that um the only thing I paid for was food for the actors when we had our hell week which was like rehearsing till midnight every day yo I remember those uh, days yeah. yeah yeah um but other than that like I you know was very happy to have that but, you know, when I – and I also wrote a grant to, like, get a little extra funny for, like, help. But I wrote the grant. I looked at all the in-kind stuff that my school was providing for me. And it was, like, $3,000 worth of stuff, technically. Yeah. And it's and that's just to, like, do a student production with people that I'm casting, people I'm not paying a show. I wrote resources I already had. 
Like, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to see it produced again. I'd also like to see it produced. I'd, I'd like to be able to direct it because I didn't direct it uh, the first time and I actually butted heads with my director. Okay. Um, and so I'd like to be able to do it directed, but I'd also like to see it done like with, you know, a professional or semi-professional company, see what it's like with me either not in the room or like see what they do with it. Sure. Because, you know, when you write a play, it's always yours and theater's a little different than film. It's that like if I write a play, you're not allowed to change my words unless I give you permission. You cannot decide that this would sound better. You cannot cut something out. In the theater, the playwright's word is law, whereas in film, you can like do whatever you want with the screenplay. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. Yeah, but like not everything, but like you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, I'd like to see what somebody does with those words. And I'd really like to see what happens without me being in the room to be like, no, this is what I meant. Or without being me to be like, no, this is how I think the character should be. I like really want to see what other people can do with it. Sure. And that's one thing about that's one thing about the the culture of being a writer uh, as a professional writer is that the moment you sell your script or you hand it off to anyone, you're, you're really beyond just giving the reins to someone else to to tell that story more accurately it's it's leaving your script susceptible to changes you didn't anticipate and you didn't ask for so i i'm 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 kind of curious about that that kind of chemistry you had with that director you just described so he's he's a friend of mine and the thing is like outside of working with him he's a fantastic guy but during the production like you know we had two different stage managers quit like at one point i wanted him off the project like there was a time when so it's a the other thing about the play is every character is Jewish because I wanted more Jewish representation, and at one point he was like, "Yeah, let's have like the main character like come out and like the light behind him will make him look like a cross." And I was like, "That is the exact opposite of what I want, especially because this scene takes place in a synagogue." Um, yeah, that's a bit weird, <laughs> but in the end, like the show ended up you know doing really well. Um, we ended up, you know, I definitely was a little bit more like protective because it was my script and I realized like some of the stuff like even though I believed I was right most of the time there were definitely times when like I didn't need to butt heads and like I should have let the director take the reins sure um and it was it was a really good learning experience for me at the end of it because I learned how to work with a director that even though I was friends with him like it was very hard to do I learned how to you know let somebody else take my work and I learned how to like you know do something that wasn't completely my own sure right I learned how to I've always been able to corroborate, but it's been with someone else's work or something I'm acting in or something I'm directing. This was something I wrote, and it was really cool to like be a part of that process no matter how much hardships there were. That's awesome. What's one scene that you think your friend nailed perfectly when directing it? One scene that I think he nailed perfectly. Um, I think you know the scene. I haven't um, seen the play. I don't know. Well, you, you, I mean, but like you've read the play. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a, I'm not going to spoil the whole thing, uh, but there's a scene where the child contemplates suicide. And I, since it's very personal to me, you know, I didn't want to be in the room for that. I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to see it till the play showed up. I didn't want to constantly be there and reliving things. And when I saw it, like, I ended up crying. I was, like, so blown away with what the director did, with what my actors were doing. Um, And I was just like, wow, that is 
Wow. Amazing. Yeah, I, I when I read that scene, uh I again this is this is this is that underlying theme of innocence in juxtaposition to reality. And it's it messed me up, to put it quite simply. Uh it, it I can't imagine being in that place and i just want to commend you for your strength that uh you've displayed both in a surviving and b uh publicizing it and bringing it to the world and eventually writing it and then putting it in someone's hands and and trusting them and trusting an entire cast and crew i mean that's that's pretty incredible thank you um you write very personally but is there anything you don't that you write that's that's not as personal? Yeah. Um so I've written, you know, I've written a couple of plays that have been like incredibly personal, like not documentary theater but very very close to it, like actual conversations I've had that have then been traumatized or like very very big things that have happened in my life that I just write about as either as a coping mechanism because I think they're really interesting stories because my life is a soap opera. Um but then I'll write something, you know, not out of my comfort zone, but something completely different. Um, and yeah, it'll have like some aspects of me, you know, I'll have a character that like, you know, resembles my personality or, you know, I'll have some dialogue that I've heard before that I find really funny. Um, but, you know, it has really nothing to do with my life. I wrote a play called The Scenic View, which I'm not going to fully get into, but, you know, it's a very, not, not avant-garde, but very like odd and very weird type of play where like one of the, the the narrator is dead the whole time and um everyone in the play is aware they're in a play except for the main character and his father is like half in the play half not in the play and half the characters are like interacting with the fact that they're in a play and also telling their own story and it's very weird and it's very fun and i also showed that at the kennedy center and half the people loved it and half the people like were going to vilify me because it was so weird and screwed up. And I was like, well, you know what? I wrote it. It's here. We're in a workshop. Um, and then I'm working on a screenplay currently, which uh, is called Page One. Um, and I'm not going to fully get into it as well because that's still very much in progress. I like don't have everything there. But it's basically about, you know, journalists in the wake of the Capitol Gazette shooting. And, you know, for me, I also major in journalism as well as theater. And my father is a journalist. But you know, the characters are really not based off people I know. It's just I happen to, you know, having worked in newsrooms, having worked in journalism, you know, know what the environment's like. And I just kind of use that to write my screenplay. Uh, that's 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 amazing. You you write a hell of a lot more than I ever have. <laughs> and and I, I respect it. You know, I'm, I'm currently working on something right now, but it's slow process because I'm still formulating the beat sheet for it right now. But I've read the beat sheet. It's very good. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. I really do. Um it's progressed since then, and I have a new document created for that beat sheet, so it's a little bit cleaner now. And on top of that, the story is 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 formulating in a realistic way. Uh, to give the audience a little bit of context to the to the script that I'm working on, uh, it's a uh, a zombie apocalyptic film that's going to be filmed uh, like it's the Blair Witch Project, that kind of style. Uh, it, this is actually a story that I this is a film that I made when I was in high school. And if you watch the video now, it's on YouTube. It's super cheesy. Uh, and and funny enough, though, despite its cheesiness, it inspired my one of my best friends, Nick Benjamin, to uh, to to reach out to me like like maybe like five years later and say, hey, Chaz, remember remember when you made Zombie Cam? 
And I was like, yeah. It's like, oh, I still want to make it. And funny enough, I was working on a different apocalyptic film at the time. And he said, put, please, put this one on the back burner. I want to work with, I want to collaborate with on Zombie Cam with you. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah. So I have, I've now completely deconstructed the old plot. And I'm recreating it to be a full feature length right now. And uh, it's a really exciting process. It's kind of going back to certain parts of my childhood, certain ideas, certain memories. Um, and overall, just like kind of uh, uh, Nick and Nick and my uh, roots as friends. And that, that just excites me. You know, it, it really does. Yeah. So that's, that's a really cool, that's a really cool experience. Um, did you always do writing? Uh, so fun fact, I wanted as a when I was really really young, I wanted to be a baseball player and actually played baseball for ten years. Um, at one point in my life, I wanted to be a chemist and then realized that I don't need to do that much math. Um, I actually wanted to do math at one point, and then after I took calculus, I'm like, this is fun. And then I just didn't take math for two years. I was like, oh, I forget it all. Um, but uh, I wanted to be an actor for a very long time, and I still do. I love acting. It's something I've been very passionate about. Um, and the reason I really wanted to do acting is every time I was on stage. Not only could I escape, um, which is something I think is really big in film and theater, that ability to escape, that ability to you know, take an audience and for five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, two hours, transport them to a completely different place and just not let them think about a breakup they've had or the bad day they're going or their job or, their, or anything. Just let them escape into the world of theater. It's also why I do magic. I'm a practicing magician because, um, you know, that like click split second of someone going wow how'd you do that like that smile on their face um and when I was acting I could not only give that to the audience but I could do that for myself and at the same time I would feel this thing that I I can't describe but it was this feeling this yeah this feeling basically that I couldn't get from anywhere else um and at the same time I was still writing but like I really liked acting and I started to transfer that feeling um, like subconsciously, like it, I don't know how it happened, but I eventually, I still love acting. I still love doing it, but I now get that feeling much more from writing after I finished a play or after I see it up there when I'm in the middle of it. Like when I'm just sitting down at my computer and writing for two hours, I get that feeling that I, not that I don't get for acting anymore, but I don't get as much. It um, sounds like, uh, if you get that feeling from what you do, you're in the right place. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what was your earliest memory of kind of sparking that excitement of escapism? Um, honestly, so uh, getting slightly personal, after my you know mother died, I you know for about like two years, I was like you know not fully dealing with it because I was young, I was ten, eleven, twelve, um, and then you know I started to do this thing called hit puberty. And then it took about seven years to go through puberty. And um, <laughs> it was... Well said. Well yeah, said. It was... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, so, um, but, you know, during that, you know, your body starts to change. But also, you know, any, you know, mental illness you have, genetic or otherwise, kind of starts to come out. And I started to get really depressed. Um, it's when I started going to therapy. It's when I started, you know, taking medicine. It's something I really, you know, started to deal with. And... You know, everyone has bad days. Everyone, you know, goes through things. And therapy and medicine, while helpful, and, you know, not shaming anyone who does it because I still do it, and I think it's very, very beneficial. I think it's wonderful that we have that. Isn't a be-all, end-all. You just, you can't be just cured. That's not how mental illness works. 
Um, it's not like a broken leg where it just eventually heals. And like, yeah, some people eventually aren't depressed anymore, depending on if it's situational, postpartum, something like that. But I found that, you know, especially in middle school, which was a really rough time for me, uh, being on stage, my rehearsal process was completely different, but like being on stage, writing, doing theater was a really, really good way for me to just kind of get out of that mindset and for me to, you know, be able to just be like, all right, for the next two hours, I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to be here. I'm not going to worry about anything. And I would feel great and I could, you know, could ride that high for hours afterwards. And then when it came down, I'd be like, ah, oh, I'm back to my life. But, you know, for that time, it was a great way to chase it almost like a drug, but it, it wasn't unhealthy, which right. is really good. It was a really good way to, you know, cope with it. And, you know, as time has went on, I've just like, now that I can do that all the time, I even majored in theater, you know, I always could get that feeling. I was able to provide joy to others as well. Um, yeah, so it's that, very rewarding. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because the last episode was also with someone who's very uh, into theater on the opposite end, uh, not being a writer, but instead an actor. Her name is Samantha Lebrecq. And, uh, you know, we talked about that feeling because we shared that experience. Mm-hmm. I, I got to be a, a part of a sliver of her current career uh, as an actress in, in, in stage, in theater. And beside, aside from it just being like a privilege to be on stage with her, and to, to have that chemistry with her on stage, uh, I know exactly what feeling you're talking about of chasing that high, uh, of being on stage. Uh, for me, I think part of it, aside from you know, uh, making people happy and whatnot, was conquering the fear of being in front of people. Even though I'm an extrovert, you know, I think at some point you just kind of force yourself. I know it's easier, uh, easier for others. As opposed to as opposed to those who might be more introverted, or or shy, but um, as soon as you get on stage, you go through this crazy change, and that change attributes to that high that you just described, and I I, I miss it so much. Uh, it's the drug that I that I face withdrawals from to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's really cool though. For going back to your. Your magic. I, I, I've seen you perform <laughs> your magic quite often. Where did that start from? Um, eighth grade as well. Uh, so when I was four, uh, my preschool teacher would come to class every day and just do a quick trick. And whenever he brought a banana, he would pretend to pull bananas out of our heads. Um, and I was like, how did he do that? And I realize now, because like, I've seen him like recently, and this guy's like, you know, 5'4". Like, he's a very wonderful, adorable, but small Jewish man. Um, <laughs> yeah. But when we're four years old, you know, we can't see very high. Like, we have to look up to do everything. And so if he just had a banana, like, and we were bending down, he could just take a banana. And we were like, <laughs> where did it come from? And he literally just had it in his hand, but right. like, we couldn't see it. Right, right. Um, but I was like, wow, that's really cool. And then I never really thought about it again. And then eighth grade, I was at a press club holiday party because my dad's a member of the National Press Club. And this guy named Theo, who is, uh, I haven't talked to him in a while, but he's like still a, he's a decent friend. And, uh, you know, he's really helped me with magic in general. Uh, show me the bunny trick. For those of you who don't know, it's literally where you take a rabbit, you place it in one hand, you take another rabbit, place it in the spectator's hand, you snap, and the bunnies have, both of them have ended up in the spectator's hand. And I was like, how did you do that? Because I've seen it for so long, but I'm still amazed. He taught me how to do it. Um, and I ended up practicing. I got a lot better at it. I got better at sleight of hand in general. I started to pick up card magic. And the rest is kind of history, basically. Uh, although I will say for like most of my high school years, I was god-awful at magic. I was like from like probably from eighth grade, so end of middle school to like junior year of high school, 
But uh, we all have our beginnings. Right, but it was <laughs> it got to the point where uh, there was a tweet that was circulating, and it goes, uh, so my high school was called the Walter Johnson Wildcats, and when I was younger, I was like, oh my god, High School Musical takes place at my high school, but no, apparently every freaking high school's name is the Wildcats. Uh, but you can't call yourself a WJ Wildcat unless Izzy Slant is asked to show you a magic trick at least once. <laughs> That's uh, awesome, though. <laughs> I never had a tweet circulate about me. It was I was it was uh, I was really happy that it was a good tweet. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Um, That's cool. But yeah, um, and actually, you know, having you know knowing magic and everything, I've actually like been able to serve and like help people. Like if people are doing plays about magic or something, like I can be a consultant. Um, at my college, the my friend who's an MFA director like wanted to do this play called the Magic Play. And, you know, it stars a magician. He's like, oh, you do magic. And so we, you know, read it and we did some stuff. And it's just really cool to have that in my back pocket. I played Hamlet at one point. Um, We really wanted to go for like this, you know, not conniving. We wanted to go like, you know, manipulative and stuff like that. And so I would do magic for stuff like that. You know, when I was screwing with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, I would do magic and, you know, show deception. When I was doing to be or not to be, I had a card and was fiddling fiddling with it the whole time. It was just a really cool thing. Yeah. Um, which I really liked. And there's like a really cool way to incorporate. And even with writing, you know, I've written like short plays or stuff like that that like have magicians in it and that, you know, are able to showcase this stuff on stage because I think it's really cool. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, it's definitely livened up some of the, at the H Lit uh, <laughs> events. Like people are always asking like, can you do the magic? Can you do the magic? And I, I love the way that people kind of, kind of go up to you with their eyes still wide and they're like, they're my age and older. And, you know, like, magic definitely does not die, uh, you know, the older you get, which is which is heartwarming. That's really sweet to me, you know? But I will say the, the bunny trick that you mentioned, that one is actually one of the few magic tricks that infuriates me. Because I feel the bunny in my hand and disappears, and I, don't, I still don't understand where it went. And it's like I'm doing all the, the math in my head as to how it could have possibly happened, and all the algorithms are floating around in my head, and I still can't figure it out. Yeah, my brain just doesn't work like that. It just, it just, it cannot compute I, how, how you're able to do that. I would have done it more often, but, and full disclosure, I don't have my bunnies anymore because all my friends, whenever they get drunk, decide that they want me to do the trick, and they always ruin <laughs> the bunnies. And so, like, they've ripped them, they've lost them, they've kept them. I gotta say, I'm on their side on this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. man. No, no, no. I, it's, it's, your, your craft is pretty cool. Well, I got, a, I got a question for you. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So we've, you know, talked a lot about my writing career, my acting career, and I know a big story about you, and, you know, we've been friends for a while. Um, but... And I know why you do theater, and I know why you act, and I know why you... Why I did. Why you did. Well, I know why you still want to, and I know why... I know why you, like, still want to be in the industry, right? And telling stories and everything like that. I don't think I've ever asked, why why have you decided that, like, your eventual career path and your goal, other than directing, is is writing? You ask a great question. Um, As young as I can remember, I like to write. Like, in elementary school... We were assigned perhaps the the poetry assignment in second grade, and I wrote something uh, that that I I was kind of really proud of, like this this one line in in a piece of poetry where I where I said, "You can see my history on my skin." That's just one. That's just one example of something that I wrote, and I was like, as a second grader, like my teacher saw that and she's like, "Whoa, <laughs> that was really cool." 
I thought that was neat, you know? Uh, I was good at it. And on top of that, I would I would practice the art of writing at any... At, I can't remember a time where I didn't write. Uh, in thinking about it, I think it's kind of innate in my family. Uh, something really cool kind of happened. Uh, also involving Nick Benjamin. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to him in a second. I, he's someone I want to get on the show, by the way. But what happened was um, uh, I was getting ready to leave for college, and I was moving around a few things in my bedroom. And so I opened up this uh, this cabinet uh, just you know filled with kind of just like junk. And I decided I'm going to organize it. I'm going to empty it. Or I'm going to empty it, and then I'm going to organize it after I find a new place for it in my bedroom because I was going to rearrange the placement of things in my bedroom, change it all up. And I did that, but while taking everything out, I discovered a whole stack of folders that I was very close to throwing out because I thought it was just old homework. Who cares about old homework? I'm never going to look through it and be proud of myself for figuring out 2 plus 2 equals 4. It does? I've messed it up a few times. A few (laughs) times I wrote 22, but don't tell anyone that. Um, But I, I opened it up, and I suddenly discovered all this literature and it was written in the name of the grandpa I never met on my dad's side. His name was Everett Volk. He went by Ed. And um, a bunch of writings. The first one I read was something called Summa Cum Laude. Uh, he, he, I don't think he actually was a Summa Cum Laude, but it's what he would have written if he was one. And then I, I, I saw this bunch, all the other folders below it. A bunch of other uh, writings that he had written. Short stories and... The first thing that's very strange is that I noticed that, to some degree, his writing was very similar to mine. And the second thing I noticed is that um, one of his one of his stories was written to. to I, I believe it was me. It might have been might have been to to my aunt's children, but I believe it was me, or at least it, it pertains to me, to an unborn son. And I thought that was that was really chilling and cool and it took an effect on me and i asked my dad about the writings and he said where did you find these i thought i lost them and i was like what are these writings and what he told me is that these writings are called my his dad published a a book called lexical engineering and lexical engineering was just a, a collection of short stories and stuff that he wrote and it inspired me and when i went into college i actually created a blog that was like my first major uh, start, and the blog. I will admit, if you read it right now, I'm sure you'll you will it will not be hard to find multiple spelling errors or grammatical issues or whatnot. Um, but it was still it was important for me to write. It's still like there there was I think like later on I started to really care about proofreading as anyone should. Mm-hmm. Uh, the grammar got better, my writing got better because I think the one thing about me is that well. I might not hit my mark 100% of the time. The story is always there, and there's always a relevance to it. There's always a significance to it, at least in my life. Uh, that was that was life-changing for me, and I needed that. I needed to get my hands, my fingers warmed up to typing on the keyboard these thoughts I had and to produce them uh, in a productive way. Uh, that was really important. So, so why writing? Because if there wasn't any writing... There wouldn't be any me. Wow. I just couldn't be me if writing wasn't a part of my life. Uh, 
Yeah. That was a good question. <laughs> Thanks Has- for asking. Hashtag my journalism degree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that, that somewhat reminds me of a story. Yeah, um, go for it. And it was also, because my dad, my dad has always wanted me to be, not always wanted me to be a writer, but like from an early age, like there was a, in fifth grade, I wrote a sitcom that I still have. Um, and my dad actually really liked it at the time, but, uh, he like really wanted me to do writing. You know, I always wanted to do acting. I was like, yeah, we used to get not the fights, but like we used to get into arguments about it. And the thing I used to tell him was why I wanted to do acting more than writing is I said, how many productions of the crucible do you think are happening in this country right now? And he said, I don't know. I said, let's say a hundred, probably not, but let's say a hundred, right? That's, you know, it's a 23 character play. So that's, uh, 2,300 actors, that's 100 directors, that's 200 assistant stage managers, 100 stage managers, a bunch of ladies, like basically so many people. And Arthur Miller wrote that play, right? One person did that. And that was my argument. I was like, why would I, you know, even though acting's hard, there's 2,200 roles right there in some production of The Crucible. And there was one guy who wrote it. And for a while, I was like, yeah, that's why I want to do it. That's why I want to be an actor. That's why, you know, I love writing, but, like, I shouldn't do it, everything. And then I realized that, like, two things. One, yeah, Arthur Miller wrote that. That means he would have, that means he had to write it, right? Someone had to write it to do all that. But two, who's to say I can't be, I mean, I'm not Arthur Miller, but, like, who's to say that one person can't be me? Yeah, right? I love that. Right? Who's to say that, you know, I want to be an actor. It's so hard and everything. So so is writing. Who's to say that can't do that? My dad believes in me. My friends believe in me. I've had a lot more success writing. So why can't that be me? Have you ever been told no? Oh, so many times. Um, and I've gotten a lot more rejection acting than writing. Um, but a big thing for being a player, I mean, screenwriting, you'll hear rejections all the time, but in playwriting, there's festivals every week, there's different competitions, all these things. And for every yes, there's going to be like 50 no's and you just got to get used to that. Like literally at the intensive, like we read rejection letters, like we, it is something you just got to be used to, but the same thing for an actor. Um, the best advice I've ever been given acting wise has been, um, your job is to audition and sometimes they give you a part. <laughs> An actor's job is to audition, and then sometimes they give you a part. Your job is not to book gigs. Your job is not to, once you get you know, gig, your job's to do a really good job, but your job is to audition. Because no matter how good you are, you know, Tom Hanks doesn't need to go in for audition, but Tom Hanks can't be in every movie. Right. Margot Robbie, as much as I'd love her to be in every movie, can't be in every movie. Meryl Streep can, though. Yeah, but Meryl Streep is... <laughs> is a uh, phenomenon. Meryl (laughs) Streep could literally play every role in every movie, and I would not bat an eye. I don't think I could either. (laughs) I I would love to see uh, just Meryl Streep do impressions of of, uh, movies that she was never in. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to see her do Jurassic Park and play every role. Including the dinosaurs. Including the dinosaurs. I want to see her chase the the Jeep. That'd be really funny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, so that's, you know, the writing thing. And so when you said, you know, if you couldn't write, you wouldn't be you, you know, like who's to say you're not going to be, you know, the next Aaron Sorkin or the next David Mamet, or I don't know many other screenwriters or playwrights that have also been screenwriters. I know a lot of playwrights, but if I name drop a lot of those, people aren't going to know who I'm talking about. Do you, this is a weird question. I've kind of been playing with this idea for a little bit. Do you want to be comparable? Yes and no. Um, the reason is because no matter what I do, no matter how much I stand out, no matter how unique I am, human nature is to compare 
psychologically we always draw things it's why when you are left for somebody else it's the it hurts the most in breakups i actually read this in uh took this in a uh, yeah in my psychology class we learned about this but i've also read about it other things um but the reason is because it's comparison bias and we tend to think like oh you know there's so much better there's other things so even if they come back to you you know that's what you always think so even if i do something that no one's ever done before right I'll still be compared to certain things. I mean, Mary Shelley basically invented the drama of sci-fi and she's still compared to other female writers. Um, for those of you who don't know, she wrote Frankenstein. Right. Um, but, you know, so on that regard, I know I'm going to be compared if, if I ever do make it big. You know, I'd like I'd like to be Izzy Salant. I don't want to have to be like the next Aaron Sorkin, the next whatever. Right. Right. But I know that's what's going to happen, and I'll hopefully eventually reach a place where I'm not the next blank, I'm just me, and then someone else is the next Izzy Salant. But I know at least starting out, or I know at least, you know, coming into the spotlight, that's going to happen. Sure. Um, but at the same time, with the idea of comparability, um, like as much as David Mamet and Aaron Sorkin are, some people do not like them as people, um, they have beautiful writing david sure. mamet has mamet speak which is you know very very natural stuff a lot of pauses a lot of ums the way people have natural cadence and if i'm recognized for that type of talent like oh i'm the next this because i represent this like beautiful type of talent and i represent this specific thing that like someone is famous for to the point where like i do it in a well it do it so well that you know they see likens to it i wouldn't mind that but I really would like to be my own person, which I'm sure everyone wants to be. Yeah. There was this one thing I wrote, one of the blogs I wrote, um, talking about, you know, why I love film. And in it, I, I said, I, I wrote down, like, I want to be amongst the names of, like, you know, Tarantino and Ford and Nolan. And I started writing all these last names to the major, you know, stars of the film industry. Uh, the stars of yesterday, I guess you can say, since this is stars of tomorrow. New podcast coming out tomorrow. Right, stars right. of yesterday. <laughs> so far, unsuccessful because it's really hard to book these guys. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just me talking the whole time. But <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be. I, I guess maybe, maybe to a certain extent, I would be flattered if someone compared me. But at the same time, I do want to be favored for a certain level of uniqueness and i'm still working on my art for that reason you know I, i'm still i'm still trying to create that uniqueness and i think i'm doing a really good job with the current project i'm working on but i still do want to be considered one of the greats uh again uh when i say that there's no writing there's no me uh, I think that those people up on that pedestal feel something similar. If you if you took Tarantino out and you took away film, like just like uh, the his style, you wouldn't have Tarantino. You wouldn't have the cinematography. You wouldn't have that. Take out Nolan. Take take Nolan. He's take away um his his amazing use of practical effects in storytelling. You get no Christopher Nolan. And, and so on and so forth, you know? I, I, I could go on a whole list about that. I think we all have that one thing that we hold precious to us that holds our identity, and that's really what makes every artist uh, special. And I, I know that sounds cheesy, uh, but it isn't cheesy until you accomplish it. 
or at least until you try. And that's the most important thing. Right. So, yeah. Um, I, I have one more question. Yeah. Um, and I'll also answer my own question. Sure. But for you, how will you know you've made it? It's a great question. And it's kind of similar to the question I ask everybody. Um, from I, I will know I've made it when my creativity can put food on the table and still make me happy at the same time. I think that's for me what happiness is. I think that's a that's a I think I, I have a pretty simple dream when it comes to what it takes for me to be happy. I want to have a big family. You know, uh, I, I've always come from a small family where at, at, for a long periods of time, it just feels like me, my, my mom, and my dad. I'm an only child. Same. You know, uh, and it's, it's, it feels small. And then I get really envious when I see big families and I, and I, and I go to family, reu- my friends, family reunions. And I get super envious of that. And uh, I love the experiences that come with, with being in a, a big family environment. If my creativity can host that kind of environment, then I'll know I've made it. That's my answer. What's your answer to that, by the way? A very similar one, because my one of my biggest goals in life is to be a father. Yeah. Um, basically, when my day job, when my life is creating, like I, you know, I work for Hillel International right now. I love my job. I am so happy being here in LA, but. The other day I walked into a theater space having not been in one for about three months and a bunch of emotions flooded me. I was like, wow, I really missed this. Wow, I can't believe I haven't been in a theater in so long. Wow, I can't, you know, go this long without doing theater again Um, or creating or doing stuff like that. Um, And so as much as, you know, I'm loving my thing and like I could be happy doing this, like I know where my heart lies. That's cool. And so very similar to you. But, you know, when I can be creative, when I can do this, and not only do people know who I am, but, like, that's what I do. That's who I am. I am a creator. What's the one thing that if they were to take it away from you, you wouldn't be you anymore? Like you writing. Okay. Uh, My friend, I have a writing partner named Ryan Dunn who is – yeah, Wonderful. I met that guy. Yeah, you met him. He's a good guy. Yeah, um, I like that guy. Yeah, he's great. Um, and we've <laughs> we've written a couple of things together. We're working on a sitcom right now. We wrote a play that like we actually tour with Hillel International, or are trying to tour with Hillel International with. Um, and we usually send each other each other's scripts to kind of you know edit and read. Um, but one time he asked me, he goes, "If you right now, someone told you you could never act again or you could never write again, what would you choose?" And I said, without hesitation, I wouldn't act again as much as I love it. Because like you, writing is who I am. I can tell stories my way. I can do something and create something from my mind, from books, from something, and make a new story or retell a story or do something and bring it to the world. Whereas acting, as much as I love it, as much as I'm able to do that, as much as I'm able to put my own spin on a character, and there's so much you can do with it. And think of all the amazing movies that are out there and the iconic roles and everything that has to go with it. Without a script, without a concept, without a story, you don't have it. Absolutely. Um, but now you've come to L.A., this is a very recent thing that, that's, that's happened 
what was it, like maybe four months ago? I moved in June. June. Yeah, so even less than that. Mm-hmm. That's like three months ago? Three months ago. Yeah. How are you liking L.A. so far? Oh, I love it. I am so happy I'm on the West Coast. Yeah? yeah. I, by the way, we should go see a play we sometime. <laughs> I have plenty of theaters uh, that I, we can go to. Cool. Yeah, no, let's go do it soon. If someone listening to this right now wanted to work with you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Cool. Uh, so I'm on this website called NPX, which if you uh, are a playwright or an actor or anyone in the theater world, even film world too, but theater world, join it. NPX for about anywhere from 10 to $18 a year, depending on the plan you want to do. Um, you can become a reader, a writer, just put your name out there, and you connect with playwrights and actors and everybody, and you read new work. Um, and so as a result, you know, if somebody has a draft of a play up there, they post it up there and all my contact information is on that. Um, if you end up doing that, but for those who don't have an account or for people who aren't joining it, NPX stands for new play exchange. Um, best way is to contact me on Facebook. I'm the only Izzy Salant on the entire network. Uh, there are actually two, there's me and then there's a page for myself I made in high school, uh, which has like a hundred likes. So you can give that a like, I guess, but I haven't been active on it in like five years. So, uh, and I never deleted it, but like, that's a really good way. Just like send me a message or something. Um, or email me. Uh, I usually give out my email cause I have multiple emails and one of my emails is literally just Izzy at gmail.com. Shoot me an email, uh, and say, Hey, this is who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. Very cool. All this information will be displayed in the description of this episode mm-hmm. to wrap up this episode. I'm going to ask you now the question I ask everybody on this show. What will you be famous for? Telling stories that need to be told. Izzy, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jazz. Congratulations. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.